Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the second week of our February series called After, where we're exploring what the Bible says about heaven, hell, and the life that's coming. And whatever your background, whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a curiosity hound and you heard about this series and so you're tuning in, wherever you're from, I'm really glad that you've joined with us on this series. And I know I have a few friends who church isn't your thing, and I'm really happy that you're here too because, hey, this will probably spark some conversations for us when we get together for coffee next. Listen, I'm convinced that whatever we believe, whatever it is, whatever we believe about what comes after really influences our life now. There are those of us who are not particularly Christian, who are tuning in, who are part of this, and I hope this series informs you. I hope it inspires you. I hope it helps you figure out what you believe, what you think, even as you bounce around what Christians believe or what the Bible has to say. Um, I think it'll do that. I hope it will. Uh, And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, like I am, I think this series is going to be important. I think it's going to be clarifying for you, knowing what God has done in Jesus, and what that means for the good future that's ahead. That not only influences our daily lives, but I think it grounds our witness to it. It helps us explain to others why we do what we do, why we're about what we're about. The goal of this after series is to help us understand what the Bible says about heaven and hell and the life that's coming, but really so that we can live more fully and love more faithfully. That's the goal. Now, today's question is, what does the Bible say about heaven? Now, I want to be honest with you. I have a complicated history with the idea of heaven. Growing up, heaven really was an otherworldly realm. It was a place you went where you died, yes. Heaven defied, really, human description. And it was often presented to me in sort of ethereal, almost non-physical ways. Although it was definitely a place where you really wanted to be. And often, you wanted to be there rather than where we were, stuck here on this planet. And certainly, it's where you wanted to go versus the other, you know, place you could go, which we'll talk about next week. Now, I admit, I learned about heaven uh, when I was part of a Christian subculture that was quite obsessed with the end times. That is, the way things uh, were going to end and how we thought Scripture foretold that, which we thought was happening really soon. The ending of this world and the beginning of the next was imminent to us in ways that deeply impressed me as a young boy and deeply stressed me as a teenager. 
we lived, we thought, on a dying and soon-to-be-burned-up-and-discarded world, that time was short, that this world was not our home, we were just passing through, and then some glad morning when this life was over, or we thought Jesus came and raptured us out of here, we were all going to fly away into the sweet by-and-by to a place of bliss and peace on some far peaceful shore forever. And those who passed on already, who died, um, they were already enjoying heaven and all of heaven's benefits, and we were going to join them there. We're all going to be happy and joyful in this state of eternal bliss forever. Like I said, kind of complicated, and my history with it is true. But I'd like you to ask that question, what's your history with the idea of heaven? Have you ever thought about that? I think we probably have a lot of different ideas. Uh, Some of them, if we came from maybe a religious background, have maybe been formed by religious stories or things that we at least think are in the Bible or things that were taught to us, things that we caught, things we absorbed, things we read. Um, Maybe you're from a non-faith background. You weren't raised in those spheres or maybe part of a different religion or an atheist household. And uh, anyway, it's just really interesting to ask the question, like, what's your history with the idea of heaven? And what kind of questions might you bring to even a day like today or a series like this? I actually want to encourage you to write those down. Maybe write down some of the ideas that you have right now about heaven or some of the questions you might have. We'll be taking an opportunity uh, to meet over Zoom and answer some of those questions, grapple with some of those questions. And so watch for that uh, invitation coming out. You can also email me direct, connect at ericksoncovenant.ca if you have some questions in advance, and that'll help me prepare even for that. But what's your history with the idea of heaven? Well, whatever your history, we're going to turn to the Bible today, and we're going to try to get a sense of what the Bible says about heaven. Uh, You might have a Bible, and I would encourage you to break it out, uh, look it up on your phone, um, open up another window. If you're watching this uh, during uh, our church online time on Sunday mornings, um, there's a chat box down on the side, and there's a Bible option right there. Uh, Follow along if you'd like. But also, if you want to just listen, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, I'm going to be moving through a bunch of different scriptures today uh, because I want to sort of help you understand what the Bible says about heaven. And so uh, just listen along too. You'll catch it. You'll catch it. Okay, let's start at the beginning, the very beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth stand for the totality of God's creation. And it's important to remember that that fits into a much larger narrative. This one kicks the story off, but that theme continues to recur through the story of the Bible. The heavens that God created over the earth he created are one of a whole. And from the perspective of those on the earth, then, of course, the heavens are above us, uh, and we look up into them with marvel. In fact, so much so that the psalmist in Psalm 8 famously expressed his surprise when he said, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. 
It is astonishing. And then he goes on to describe our role here on the earth as rulers and stewards under this God who made the heavens and the earth. And it puts things into perspective. As the scripture narrative unfolds, the earth part of that equation gets drugged down into the suffering and the evil of humanity. And through the scriptures, and particularly through the prophets that God would send to his people, they began to talk about a time of restoration that was coming, promised and accomplished by God through his Messiah. And Isaiah, he caught it this way. He said, quoting from God, God was saying, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And this vision of a new heavens and a new earth, because everything here was so messed up, began to be a way that prophets and then later apostles would speak of God's intention to fully restore his world. As the Bible story unfolds, it becomes clear that this new heavens and new earth isn't a total scrapping of everything God had done, but rather a renewal of the world itself, a a making right of God's whole heavens and earth. The best proof of that is actually the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, where the resurrection of the body of Jesus is like a foretaste or a deposit, a prototype of the whole new creation. So that we look at Jesus, we look at his body risen again, and we say, oh, what happened to that one body, what happened to Jesus is a a proof or an example of what's going to happen now for all of the world when God restores it fully. We see that Jesus rose in a new body, and yet it was the same body. It's still the nail scars. It, he was still recognizable when he allowed it, but, but different somehow, glorified somehow, better somehow, but still fully, fully human. Well, by the end of the Bible, uh, the vision uh, that was given after the final judgment with death, when death is finally destroyed at the end of, of, of Revelation uh, 21, uh, at the end of the Bible, uh, John sees something. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Sea represented chaos. There's a bunch of images going on here. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Now, we've talked about this before. In fact, we talk about it quite a bit around here because it's such a, an anchor part of our Christian faith, how heaven comes to earth, and then God lives among his people here on a recreated earth in renewed creation. It's super important that we get that down deep because it actually profoundly affects our understanding then of heaven. So 
for today, at least see these two things. This big story arc from the creation of the heavens and the earth to the renewal. The new heavens. The new earth. And then also understand that that's the primary way, actually, that heaven is talked about. It's this creation, new creation thing in Scripture. But the second way the Bible uses the word heaven is actually as a way of talking about God's rule or God's reign, God's authority, God's presence. Uh, In the Hebrew Scriptures, God is often referred to as the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that was usually in contrast to the local deities, uh, the territorial gods of various tribes and people. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood that they they were not following a local god. They were worshiping the creator of heaven and earth. One of the ancient kings of Judah, King Jehoshaphat, prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. God is enthroned on high. He rules over us from the heavens, in the heavens, but not not contained by the heavens. But as time went on, heaven began to be synonymous with God's rule and God's reign. So much so that in the New Testament, uh, this has become synonymous. This is really clear in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the first of the stories about Jesus. It's the first book in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he's famous for using uh, heaven as a replacement uh, often for the word God, particularly when we talked about the kingdom of God. Uh, It's really obvious when you read a parallel passage in Matthew or Luke. Those are the two other Gospels that uh, were similar to Matthew. Uh, Whereas Mark introduces Jesus as Jesus comes out of baptism and he's announcing things, the first thing Jesus says publicly is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. It's from Mark chapter 1. Matthew, though, writes Jesus as saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See the exchange? Matthew was like a lot of devout Jews in his day, and they were uncomfortable with using the name of God. And out of reverence, they would often swap out uh, them with an alternate name. In this case, instead of saying kingdom of God, Matthew said kingdom of heaven, and he consistently does that through Uh, his gospel. Another example in the gospel of Luke, Jesus shares uh, many parables, but uh, in Luke, he says, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. But over in Matthew, the same parable reads, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. At this point in Jewish history, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonyms. Heaven, used in this way, represents that the rule, the reign, the authority, the presence of God himself, particularly in the Gospels, as it's now being revealed in the life, the healing, the teaching, the power encounters, and ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, 
there was some kind of disconnect now between these two, which is why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a recognition that that's not the case. And we long for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the righteousness and the mercy and the justice and the love, his rule to actually be true here on earth. That God is the God of heaven and earth, but on earth, in its current state of rebellion and confusion, it's out of sync with heaven. It's, it's, not, it's not matching up anymore. And the big story of the Bible and the big story of history is how God sent his son into the earth to become one of us, to become a human from the earth, and to begin to bring these two realities back into sync, heaven and earth. And to do that through Jesus Christ, to make heaven and earth one again, which is exactly what we see, of course, at the end of Revelation. And it's why Jesus declares at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the rightful king of this world. And he is going to set everything right. Okay, pause. Lots of information so far. I understand, and perhaps it feels at this moment that this is way more detail about things you didn't actually come here today to hear about. You came here to talk about heaven, like what happens to people when they die. And I understand that, and that's where we're going to go. But it's important that we explore this for this reason. Whenever we hear people talking about heaven, whenever we ourselves are talking about heaven, even as followers of Jesus, you start talking about heaven, it usually has very little to do with how the Bible actually is using the word heaven. They aren't actually often related, or at least not in obvious ways. When the Bible uses the word heaven or heavens, it's not usually, if ever, referring to a place that people go when they die, which is how we're often talking about it. It's most often, as we've discovered, talking about God's creation, talking about God's rule, talking about the way that God is going to make all things new through Jesus here in this world. And so, as you can imagine, saying heaven without explaining it, or worse, imagining that we're talking about what the Bible says about heaven, uh, well, that could actually make our conversation even more confusing. So, with all that in mind, important backdrop, let's actually get to the main thing that you probably thought I would be talking about today, which is, what does the Bible say about what happens to people after they die? Like, where are they going? What's up with that? When the Bible talks about that, we actually discover it uses a lot of other terms, a lot of different phrases, a lot of different imagery, which I actually think is kind of helpful because if you consider some of the confusion that we have, some of even just the common cultural ideas that we share, even in the church, but certainly in our broader culture about heaven, um, maybe it's helpful that these words aren't the same so that rather than trying to constantly redefine the term, we can just abandon it, at least maybe for a little bit, and then use the terms the Bible uses to talk about what happens to people after they die. So let's look at five important words or phrases that the Bible uses for that, okay? That's where we're going to go today. And I'll try to show you, I'm, I'm trying to show you what the Bible says about these things, so bear with me. There'll be a bit of scripture here. The first one we'll start with is 
uh, maybe one that's really obvious, one that we often think of, and that is the idea of heaven as paradise. Paradise. Now, that comes to us uh, probably most likely a a famous story, the thief on the cross story, where we have a thief in Luke 23 hanging next to Jesus up on the cross, and in his last agonizing moments, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers them and says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice he doesn't use the word heaven. He uses the word paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. It's a beautiful promise. It's an incredible assurance. And the idea of paradise has definitely shaped many of our cultural ideas about heaven. In the understanding of the time, paradise was a good place to go. And it was pictured as an enclosed garden of delight, a kind of return to an Edenic paradise, an Edenic, beautiful, manicured, cared for, not a wild place, but a cared for place where there would be fruit and beauty and pleasure But it's also important to know that this paradise was not envisioned as a final place of rest. It was more of a temporary holdover. Tom Wright, one of our greatest living biblical scholars today, puts it this way. Paradise is here, he's referring to this story, uh, as in some other Jewish writings, not a final destination, but the blissful garden, the parkland of rest and tranquility, where the dead are refreshed as they await the dawn of the new day. Rather than describing heaven and what it's like, though, the promise here is that this thief, this sinful scoundrel who, through no goodness of his own, by the grace of God, is able to actually die and be with Jesus. What grace! rest. And that's really, really good news. And it it tells us something so beautiful about Jesus. It tells us something so simple about our faith. But this man here is able to turn and simply say, remember me. And Jesus says, done. You'll be with me. It's beautiful. Uh, Second way the Bible refers to believers who have died uh, is uh, as people who have fallen asleep. Uh, Sleep is very simply used as a euphemism for death. We read this all over the New Testament. Uh, Here's an example um, from 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Um, In 1 Thessalonians we read, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Sleep. It's just a metaphor for dead. Uh, Doesn't actually mean that those who are dead are in a state of of sleep, as though they're unconscious, kind of like you are at 3 in the morning. The idea of soul sleep is believed by some, but I don't think that that's what these scriptures actually signify. But hey, you know, people do believe that. Really, sleep in the scripture is just a gentle way of talking about death. We use the word passing away all the time as a similar way. So, asleep. A third way. Uh, another picture we get 
um, of those who've died, died in Christ as those who are waiting in hope, waiting in hope. This is given to us beautifully in Revelation chapter 6. It depicts actually in this particular vision, it depicts Christians who've been slaughtered under one of the great Roman persecutions in the first century. And it's written, of course, to um, a group of churches who are suffering persecution. So it has a lot of connection with them. But this is what we read in Revelation 6, um, starting in verse 9. Uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them is given a white robe. They're told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And it fits into a larger narrative in Revelation, assuring the people of God that they've not been forgotten, even as they continue to be persecuted. But this is a really interesting picture because it hints at an awareness within those who've died, so maybe not sleeping. They're aware not only of what happened to them when they were on the earth, but they're also aware of what's still going on there. And they cry out to God for justice. I mean, it's a provocative question. Could it be that those who've gone before us are themselves still anticipating the end of evil, still interceding for the end of evil, still looking forward to the renewal of all creation? It seems that way. They're waiting in hope. Another term the Bible uses is simply being dead in Christ. In fact, after using the term asleep, you know, for dead, um, multiple times in a row, Paul uses it in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he then shifts to calling these people the dead in Christ because it's at that moment he's going to make a connection to the resurrection. He, he says in, in 4.16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will be resurrected. See how, see how important that is? It's important to note that wherever heaven is at this point in time, when where, whatever heaven that they're in, it's temporary because now the dead in Christ are going to rise. In other words, the dead in Christ currently are in a place, not in a body. They're not yet where they will be in the end. That's really important. And the final term I want to refer to you is probably the most important one, and we've already kind of heard it, and that is the idea that those who have died are simply with Christ. When Paul was reflecting on his own, uh, what he thought, at least at that moment, imminent death, we know later he was beheaded, or at least tradition tells us that. But as he was reflecting on that in prison, he feels torn because... uh, there's ongoing needs in the, in the, in the, in the churches and the people of, uh, whose lives he's been involved in, people he loves. They have needs. And so what he shares is profound. He says, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, which is a beautiful way to look at our lives and our deaths, isn't it? I've had conversations with Bill Plant about just this, how Christ will be glorified exalted in our bodies, whether by life or by death. It's a beautiful, beautiful perspective. 
Someone who trusts in the resurrection promise of Jesus can speak this way. But then Paul goes on and says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. What's he torn between? Listen to this. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Did you hear that? To die is to be with Christ. Maybe more specifically, to be alive with Christ. And we need to understand even what Paul's saying here with our, with our biblical lenses firmly in place. We don't want to miss here, Paul. Paul's not denying the goodness of the human body. He's not denying the future resurrection. In fact, what he's saying is rooted in the fact that to die now is to be with his Messiah forever. And that's the best thing ever. And Jesus, the Messiah, is already in a resurrected body. He's guaranteeing our resurrection to come. In fact, wherever and whatever heaven is, the people who are hanging out with Jesus, if they're ever getting depressed, not that that would happen, and they're wondering, what will we look like in the future when we have a resurrected body? All they have to do is look around and look at Jesus. Oh, that's what we're going to, there he is. Jesus is proof that our resurrection is coming. Which brings us, I think, full circle, doesn't it? Back to that promise of Jesus to the thief on the cross. Anyone who simply places their trust in Jesus finds that to die is to be with Christ, to be alive with Jesus now and looking forward to their resurrection. Okay, that's a ton of information. I recognize that. But these are just some of the main ways that the Bible speaks about those who have died with faith in Christ who have died having placed their hope and their trust in Jesus and what he did for them. That's how the Bible speaks of them, that they're now with Jesus in a place of beauty, a place of love, a place where God is, they're, they're conscious of God's care and God's, God's um, just how wonderful it is and how precious they are. And they're, they're waiting for the renewal of all creation. They're waiting for our shared resurrection. It's really another way of just affirming the truth of Romans 8 that says nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what comes very clear, and I want us to hear today, in light of this whole biblical story of creation and new creation and new heavens and new earth and resurrection, is that this heaven, this heaven, when we're referring to a place where we go when we die, is is, is more about who we are with forever than where we are temporarily. You know, those who are with Christ now, in whatever that is, because we don't have a ton of information, to be honest with you, a lot of the things we even think about heaven are really things we've ripped out of context that refer to resurrection, refer to the new heavens and the new earth. So whatever is happening now, think of it this way. Those who have died and are with Christ now are really just experiencing a very long layover on their way back to God's renewed world in a resurrected body. It's a temporary time. Randy Alcorn, who wrote an immense study on all things heaven, I recommend it to you. He said it best. I'm going to quote him. He said, 
The answer to the question, will we live in heaven forever, depends on what we mean by heaven. Will we be with the Lord forever? Absolutely. Will we always be with him in exactly the same place that heaven is now? No. In the intermediate heaven, this is what he that's how he talks about the temporariness of things. In the intermediate heaven, we'll be in Christ's presence and we'll be joyful, but we'll be looking forward to our bodily resurrection and permanent relocation to the new earth. It bears repeating because it's so commonly misunderstood. When we die, believers in Christ will not go to heaven where we'll live forever. Instead, we'll go to an intermediate heaven. In the intermediate heaven, we'll await the time of Christ's return to earth, our bodily resurrection, the final judgment, and the creation of the new heavens and new earth. If we fail to grasp this truth, we will fail to understand the biblical doctrine of heaven. What does the Bible say about heaven? God rules. And through his ruling King Jesus, heaven is coming back to earth. We pray for that. We live for that. We point to that. We demonstrate that in the ways that we love and serve and confess and worship. And we wait for it to happen. And until it does, those who die in Christ are with him. In the presence of God, safe and loved and secure. The dead in Christ who are in heaven, they are, sure. But heaven is on its way back here. And when it does, it'll be more wonderful than we we can imagine as we live in a new heavens, a new earth, resurrected body. God will be here. We'll be fully human again as God always intended. And the world will flourish. I hope you want to be part of that. Well, maybe that has helped you with some of your questions. Maybe that has added more. Maybe you're sitting here going, oh, I'm so confused. But I hope you picked up on some basic things today that have encouraged you or clarified things for you or helped you understand what Christians think, what the Bible says. And if there are some questions that are forming for you, I encourage you to write them down. Be part of a Q&A conversation we'll be hosting later on in the month. Why does all this matter? as we finish. First of all, getting this kind of stuff straight, it does help us worship God. When we understand how good God is, how he rescues us from sin, how he offers us life through his son, Jesus. And now that promise of life isn't just a scrapping of everything God had done. It isn't just a setting aside, but rather a renewal of his promise, a renewal of his commitment, of, of, of all, all the, the whole package, the, the resurrection and the life and the freedom, that leads us to worship God for his greatness, his power, his commitment, his faithfulness. It really informs our worship. God is so good. God is so great. The second is to think it, it, it relieves us. It helps us rest. Both when we consider the death of others, but also our own. We, we know that we are held and loved in Christ. Death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. But those who are in Christ are secure and safe and held. And, and, and when we're concerned, we can just rely on the, the, the trustworthiness of God and his care. 
And, and, and there's some, some relief and some rest in there for us. The other difference I think it really makes is in, in how we read and apply God's word to our lives, the scripture story. When we understand better God's rule, when we understand better how he's affected that through Jesus and how through the resurrection of Jesus, God has already begun to renew this world and he's committed to that. It helps us now live toward that new creation, pray toward it, and anticipate the kingdom of God in the little ways that we live and serve. It changes us, helps us live out new creation now, which I think also gives us hope, hope that we can share in, hope that we can give. You know, it's interesting in in the passage that I already quoted part of it. Paul said, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be informed about those who sleep, those who've already died, so that you will not grieve like everybody else does, like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Living as people of hope is so significant, especially today when so many people are, they don't have hope. They don't know that they're loved. They don't know that there's a promise. They don't know that God is committed to them, to this world. They don't know what God has done in Jesus. And that changes us. We don't need to mourn as those who have hope. We don't have to live as those who don't have any hope. We can truly be people of hope. Listen, friends, that's what I have for you today. I hope that this has encouraged you. I hope it's clarified some things. I know it's also raised some other questions. I just want to affirm again, wherever you are from, whatever your background, let's keep wrestling through these questions. Let's keep talking about them. Let's go for coffee. Give me a call, email, whatever. Talk about it with friends. Share perspectives. Let's get clarity because it really matters what we think about what comes after. Let me pray for you as we finish. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love. I think of that that story of you on the cross in your moment of greatest agony. The fact that you were able to look at a, another man and just, just assure him of his place with you. In so many ways, Jesus, it just sums up your heart, your life, the whole story. You entered into our pain. You entered into our suffering. And from that place of suffering, you offered us life and freedom and promise. And Jesus, today, we went through some of the scriptures on these things. There's so much more. But I pray that, that there would have been something today that each one of us grabbed a hold of that helps us, that gives us more hope, more clarity in ways that actually help us live our lives today. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence here. By your Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.